When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Big Mood, Little Mood listeners, I want to remind you of all the cool things that happen when you sign up for a Slate Plus membership. You'll stop hearing ads on all Slate podcasts. You'll stop hearing me reading ads on my Slate podcasts. Think of how much better your life would be if you didn't have to hear that. I know mine would. You'll be supporting Big Mood, Little Mood, and all of Slate's shows. Slate Plus helps keep our shows going. You'll get to hear bonus episodes of this show, as well as all your other favorite Slate shows like Slow Burn, Amicus, and Political Gab Fest. And you'll have unlimited access to every article and advice column on Slate's website, never hitting the paywall, plus an additional question and answer from me each week. Support our show and Slate's journalism and sign up for Slate Plus at slate.com slash mood plus. That's slate.com slash mood plus. To Big Mood, Little Mood. I am your host, Daniel M. Lavery, and with me in the studio this week is Jessica Nordell, a science journalist and the author of the book The End of Bias, A Beginning, a solutions journalism look at overcoming unconscious bias and discrimination. Jessica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I am so happy uh, to have you on the show. I'm so happy that this has worked out. I am once again uh, recording from the UK as I am still here with um, my wife Grace on her book tour. And uh, I'm now like so far into my trip into the UK that the episodes I recorded having recently recovered from COVID now feel like they took place a year ago. Um, and so we're, we're going through different phases of my trip. Um, and this phase is not sick which is great. <laughs> and I'm so pleased that uh, you were able to join us today. And I don't know if I was successfully able to incorporate like a theme into our letters. I often try to find ones that at least somewhat line up with whatever my particular guests like area of expertise is. Um, so I'm hoping that if there's not already a through line of questions about unconscious biases that we will find one or worst case scenario, force one. <laughs> that sounds great. Good. Okay. Well, with that in mind, would you be interested in reading our first letter? Absolutely. So the subject of this letter is, am I a snowflake? And this is what the letter writer says. A good friend and I had a falling out, and I'm not sure whether to try repairing the relationship. We've been part of the same friend group for 10 years. I've spent the night at his house. He attended my very small wedding. Sometimes he makes xenophobic and racist comments about a specific ethnic group that neither of us belong to. I usually respond by asking him why he's saying this and if those comments really reflect his values. I've done this in the past with other friends, and while they're not always pleased in the moment, they're usually grateful I was willing to have a difficult conversation with them rather than write them off. This friend, though, usually invokes his own marginalized identities to deflect and shut me down. He'll also cite his own advocacy. As best I can tell, this involves trolling right-wingers and Trump supporters on social media. 
as if that's a relevant justification. He did it again a few weeks ago in a group setting, even worse than usual. I said something, and he laughed and claimed he did it just to goad me. He said I was being ridiculous, referenced his own ethnic identity, and announced he had just hired a person of color at work. A few other friends spoke up to agree with me, but he was unmoved. I haven't heard from him since. I'm sad, angry, and confused. And I don't feel secure enough in our friendship to approach him about it now. For context, I'm a white autistic woman in her 40s, and he's a second-generation Italian-American. Am I missing something? Am I being insufferable? I don't like to write people off, but can this friendship be saved? Gosh, um, where do you think is a useful place to start on this one? I, I will confess I had, uh, you know, more of a chuckle than I anticipated when I got to the line about he's second generation Italian-American. <laughs> um, that's, that's just where I began. I mean, I, my first question reading this letter is, what is the writer getting from this friendship? So far, we've learned that this person disparages other ethnicities refuses to engage when very politely confronted, gets very defensive, says he's doing it just to get a rise out of you. This sounds like a troll. This is the definition of a troll. This person is an obstacle to goats. That is my immediate impression. Yeah, I, I had a, a similar read. I, I mean, I think most people would probably have a similar uh, read on this situation. I don't think this is one that strikes me as being like especially complicated or that would split a lot of people's opinions. Um, my my guess was that part of what this letter writer was sort of anxious about was losing a longstanding friend. Yes. Um, you know, because again, I also noticed she didn't include lots of details about like how he, you know, shows that he cares for me or exactly. the things that he's done for me. So much as just, we've been friends a long time. He's been at my wedding when not a lot of people were at my wedding and I have spent the night at his house, which again, doesn't mean she doesn't have fond memories of him. It just struck me that like, it, it seemed like it was more about a concern of, would this be letting down the idea of friendship or the idea of long-term loyalty rather than I'll be you know, so devastated to lose all these other great qualities of his. Does that seem right to you based on the the wording wording here? Yeah, I mean, that that I that also struck me. It seemed like maybe there's like a sentimental attachment to the the idea of the friendship and the fact that they, you know, maybe they shared some meaningful moments. To, well, they obviously they did, you know, he was at her wedding and that that is kind of conflicting with the very real like disturbing behavior that he's uh, expressing now. And that rings true to me that there's like a sense of conflict over those two realities. Yeah. And my other uh, sort of intuition or more less than intuition, but more than reading between the lines. Um, but I, I, I wondered if the letter writer included the fact that she is autistic um, as a way to gesture towards Either maybe in the past, historically, people have also tried to goad me mm. and I don't always trust my own judgment because I worry that people are trying to mislead me or manipulate me or make me look foolish because of my autism, which I think is 
potentially like a painful context or else just, you know, I'm used to other people kind of overlooking my concerns or saying that I am taking something too literally or that I don't understand, you know, some sort of nuance or context because of my autism. And so I felt like that was also part of what was going on in the background, even though she didn't come out and say, I worry that this is explicitly because of how he views my autism. Um, But it seemed like a likely relevant context. Or possibly, you know, if uh, perhaps she has been told in the past that her read of a social situation isn't correct. And exactly. Yes. So she's, you know, she's maybe come to call into question her own, you know, her own take, her own reality. Exactly. And so, you know, letter writer, when you ask, am I missing something or am I being insufferable? I don't think so. There's nothing here that suggests to me that you've left something meaningful out or that you are misunderstanding something. You, you, you've got what sound like a, a number of fairly specific and direct examples, uh, as well as like an out and out, yes, I do this to goad you. Right. Um, so, you know, I don't think you're missing something. And it certainly doesn't seem like you're being at all unreasonable. I mean, again, the reason I sort of laughed when I got to that line about he's second generation Italian-American is just like the idea of it's okay to say racist things you know, my parents are from Italy, that it's just baffling. (laughs) Like, that's just, you know, bad even by trollish standards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think, I mean, she she did, you know, the honorable thing by gently asking, like, why why are you saying that? You know, does this, you know, reflect your values? And I think if she really wanted to pursue this, she could say, you know, these remarks are making me so uncomfortable that if you don't stop, I need to step away from this relationship. But it, it sounds like he's already done that for her, which is kind of a blessing. Yeah, I mean, not, I understand why the letter writer feels like sad and angry and hurt. That makes a lot of sense to me as a response. But I don't think there's any like doors you've left unopened here. I don't think there's any uh, effort that you have failed to make, letter writer. You know, you've brought this up with him many times, always, you know, carefully and in a way that's similar to the way that you talk to your other friends. You didn't, you know, suddenly yell at him out of nowhere or treat him differently than you treat other people. Other friends have now also intervened and that didn't move him. He's, you know, uh, it sort of escalated it by saying he does this on purpose because he likes upsetting you. Um, I think you have, you know, tried everything. I don't think that you're writing anyone off at this point. I don't think that you've let this one wait too long. I think you've given this your absolute best shot. And unfortunately, he has never met you even, you know, halfway or a quarter of the way. And that's sad and painful, especially in the context of a a decade-long friendship that's involved a lot of, you know, intimacy and shared meaningful experiences. Um, But, you know, I don't think you're missing anything. I don't think you're being unreasonable. I don't think there's like one more conversation to be had here. I think he's been pretty clear and pretty consistent. Um, And I think uh, this is a good point to say this friendship is over. Even if he did try to get back in touch with me now, um, it would not be just a a question of like, let's have one conversation and repair it. Um, And I would encourage you to, you know, share your feelings of sadness, anger, and confusion with other people in your life who do care about you. Maybe some of the other friends who also spoke up. I think those are probably people who kind of know what you're going through and maybe are sharing some of those feelings. And, um, you know, they might not necessarily all be making the exact same decision that you might be in this moment, but they probably have a lot in common with you. So I would encourage you to to share those feelings with them and to look for support there. Yeah. And I mean, this this letter writer, based on everything that she's shared, sounds like an extremely thoughtful, insightful, compassionate person who really cares Mm -hmm. about other people. And I encourage you uh, 
letter writer to invest in the people out there who will share that back with you. You know, you have a lot of light and love to, to give to the world. And there are people who will return that, you know, to you and yeah. um, and respect that and honor that. And they're out there. And I think they deserve your attention and resources more. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's it. I think that's all I've got on this one. It's pretty straightforward, even if it's sad. And just again, letter writer, I just want to, you know, say one more time, it makes sense that you feel sad and hurt and confused. It's really sad that someone you have known and cared for for 10 years wasn't even willing to entertain the possibility that you had a point or that you had his best interests at heart, wasn't even willing once to say, you may be right, you know? Um, and so it feels really hurtful to think like this, like, you know, it's not even just that we had a falling out. It's that he chose making the same dumb racist joke over and over again without anybody pushing back that he chose over me. And that feels so, you know, petty and venal to lose a friendship you really cared about over. And again, I would just say that's something that makes sense to be sad about. It's really sad that he did that. It's really sad that he chose that over you. You deserve better than that. And, uh, just I hope you don't have to go through something like that again. And um, I hope that you can find other people to lean on. And, um, you know, if it's difficult to think about, gosh, there were only 10 people at my wedding and one of them ended up being an asshole. Again, just share that with people. Um, mourn that loss. It's okay. You will get over it eventually. But that doesn't mean you have to rush through and say, I'm over it now. You can you can linger in the sadness. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And I think that's all I've got. So I will move us into our next letter, which I think kind of more explicitly has questions about uh, people's relationship to autism at the sort of forefront. So um, we're sort of taking a theme from the background to uh, the foreground. And so I think that's going to be interesting. I don't always get to do that with my questions and it's kind of neat how they just happen to line up this week. So the subject of this one is bad at pretending. I think my friend is faking her autism symptoms. I don't mean I think she's faking autism. We're both women who are diagnosed as adults, which is pretty common, and we've bonded about that as a result. But she's started claiming traits of autism that I know she doesn't really have but that do match up to the most immediately recognizable image of what ASD looks like. She claims not to understand figurative language she's historically understood and used, and calls any passing hobby a hyperfixation. Even though she's admitted to lying about certain symptoms during the diagnostic process, I do believe she is autistic, as far as that umbrella term means anything. 
It's an important part of her identity. So I suspect she might just be trying to make that identity more visible, perhaps subconsciously. It really bothers me, though, because transparently faking stereotypical symptoms to get people to acknowledge you're autistic doesn't do much to help people like us, who went for years without diagnoses or support because we weren't what people expected autistic kids to be, and on a more selfish level because it touches on my own anxieties about people taking my needs seriously. Should I talk to her about it? If so, how? Or is this the kind of situation where I just need to deal with my own feelings in private and pretend I haven't noticed this act? Hmm. Complicated. Mm-hmm. I have a sort of immediate, I, I don't even know what exactly the word is here. There's something that I want to encourage this letter writer to consider or prioritize that I think is really important before I want to try asking the questions that are actually being posed here. And I, I think I'll start with that if that's okay with you. Yeah, absolutely. I had a sort of similar <laughs> similar thought, so I'm really curious to hear what your reaction was. Yeah, you know, letter writer, um, I would just really want to encourage you to entertain the possibility that there is another way of thinking about this change you've noticed in your friend outside of lying or faking. And that's not to say that you must not ever consider that or that I forbid you from thinking that. Um, but based on what you've written here, to me, it seems like there's, there's other far more generous or relaxed readings of this shift that don't necessarily, um, rest on assuming the worst possible, I I don't know, not motive exactly, but like technique. Um, you know, you say that your friend's used to use figurative language and that you believe she understood it, you know, bearing in mind that we can only at best speculate what we believe someone else knows, right? Like we weren't actually inside other people's heads. So we can think, all right, I've seen this person use this in a way that nobody else um, corrected before. Um, It seemed to me like she had a pretty innate understanding of how that language worked, but I don't know conclusively that she, you know, felt, you know, like, I guess, I guess I would just say, like, is it possible that your friend used figurative language in the past in a way that was relying more on context clues or repeating things that she had heard other people say and feeling a sense of approximation or guessing? Um, like, like, to me, that seems possible here. And so I'm a little curious why you immediately thought she must be lying rather than Maybe now that she feels more comfortable or secure in a diagnosis, she's able to acknowledge that, you know, that kind of language never really made as much sense to her as she claimed that it did. And I I just don't know why you would discount that as a possibility. Does that strike you as a possible thing that could be explaining this new behavior? I had a very similar thought. (laughs) I thought maybe this person now feels liberated to acknowledge that she doesn't understand, you know, a certain thing or that she, you know, maybe she feels more free with this diagnosis. I mean, the other, the other thing I was thinking about is that something that I've, I've noticed with people that I'm close to who have received a a diagnosis that kind of makes certain things make sense in a way. Like if people, you know, for instance, have get a diagnosis of autism or ADHD or bipolar or a, a diagnosis that kind of puts a name to something that was perhaps a very painful and maybe isolating experience and 
um, maybe just very um, difficult sort of experience, that this can be a huge relief, That just that label, that name to, for it. And that sometimes then it's it, it can be so liberating to have that, that a lot is looked at through that particular lens. And I feel like that's not to say that this person is lying about you know, her, what's going on, but perhaps she is seeing a lot through the lens of this autism label. So, so maybe she wouldn't have called a hobby a hyperfixation before, but maybe now that really resonates. Maybe that now that really rings true for her. Um, and that that's a useful lens for her to, to see her own experience. So again, like I would caution away from this kind of this decision that the person is lying and, you know, look at it with more of a spirit of compassion and curiosity, like, and and really trying to understand why, you know, why, why this might be happening. Yeah. I, I think especially uh, this struck me because the letter writer was sort of already aware of like, you know, many people, uh, many of them women, not all, but many get diagnosed a little later in part because they, uh, you know, don't necessarily hit all the rubrics of what others are looking for. And and part of what goes into that is, you know, I'm sure letter writer, you're familiar with this phrase, is, is like masking or sometimes called like camouflaging. And it's just like a strategy of, again, like kind of looking for context clues, trying to stay with the group, trying to repeat behaviors or patterns or habits or, or you know, types of speech um, that make things easier for you, that get you less notice, that get you less hassle, um, that make other people think, okay, nothing to worry about here. And so, you know, if somebody after they receive a diagnosis think, oh, maybe this stuff that I found exhausting and draining, but that made everyone else think I was like everybody else, I don't have to do. That's not mandatory anymore. I'm going to stop doing it. Again, to me, that seems a far likelier explanation than your friend uh, received her diagnosis and then said, I've always understood figurative language, but for, you know, <laughs> either like no reason at all or simply to make other people uh, slightly more aware of my autism, I'm just going to start saying I don't know how metaphor works. So, you know, to me, this is like an Occam's razor situation. Which of those two scenarios sounds likelier? And to me, the first one sounds far, far likelier than the second. So letter writer, I would really encourage you to consider the possibility that your friend is just dropping some of her masking behaviors that she used to do that maybe she found really exhausting or alienating or difficult rather than she's just decided to lie for convenience's sake. You know, again, especially the calling a passing hobby a hyperfixation, I would just say like, maybe you find that irritating, but it doesn't require that you do anything. She's not asking you to, you know, change anything about how you speak or engage with your own hobbies or even how you engage with her hobbies. She's just stopped saying the word hobby and started saying the word hyperfixation. Uh, you know, at most, I guess I would say like, I guess that could be a little irritating if you don't like that word, but it's just, there's, what, what, it's no skin off your nose um, to use figurative language. It's not harming you in any way. It's not asking you to do anything differently. I really don't know how you could frame a request to a friend like, I'd like you to stop calling hyperfixate, or I'd like you to start calling your own hobby. It's like, hobbies. I need to change yeah. the way you talk about your own, <laughs> your own experience. It's very strange. It would be a strange request. Yeah. I just, there's no way I think that you could make that request that wouldn't be at, at best kind of rude. One, one thing that did occur to me if there is like some trust in this friendship is that it could be an opportunity if it's done with really a spirit of 
true curiosity and not like in a gotcha kind of way. But really, if if this writer really does want to understand more about her her friend, you know, you, she could say to the friend, you know, I'm really, I'd really like to understand more about you and your experience. And can you help me understand, you know, can you help me understand why, you know, you used to call crocheting baby booties your, your favorite hobby. And now you refer to it with this different term. Like, I just, I'm curious about why that has happened. And I'd love to, you know, learn more. And if you, if you can Mm -hmm. do that with really a spirit of compassion and curiosity, it might, you know, it might open up a new kind of level of understanding between the two of you also. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And certainly if you were able to frame it in a non sort of like preemptively judgmental way, you could even say, you know, I have noticed that after your diagnosis, you've been talking a little bit more about not understanding or not liking or not wanting to use figurative language or or saying that you don't understand it. And I'm really curious. I had sort of thought of you uh, before as somebody who was like really good at it. You, you, you seemed to, to do it well. What was that like for you actually? Like I only knew what I saw on the outside. What did it feel like? And I don't mean say it like you used to be really good in it in a gotcha way of like, actually, right. I've noticed that you must be lying. But like if you could actually frame it as a curious, open-ended question, you know, she might have some interesting insight. But I, I wouldn't encourage you to ask those questions if you feel like I would still really just be trying to get her to admit that she is lying, which I believe she must be. Um, if that's the case, I would encourage you not to ask the question at all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I just think the the confidence in transparently faking I, I think you have too much confidence there. I, I don't believe that you know that she is transparently faking. You do not have the smoking gun that you seem to think that you do. And so I, I would just really discourage you, letter writer, from approaching your friend with this certainty of like, I know you're lying, just admit it. I don't think you do know that. Um, and even if you suspect it, I, I think you, frankly, based on what you've written here, don't have justification to try to like catch her out or insist that she um, admit that, Uh, you're right and she's wrong. You know, uh, transparently faking stereotypical symptoms to get people to acknowledge you're autistic doesn't do much to help people like us. You know, okay, but neither does calling a hobby a hyperfixation hurt Mm -hmm. you or people like you either. Like, again, even assuming you're right and she's just totally making this up, this is a totally neutral act. There's no need to be like, haha, I've caught you. Stop. Um, and also, like, I think it's too high a burden to place on your friend who just got a diagnosis that, like, everything she does or every way she talks about her own autism must somehow also help everyone like you. Like, that's a big <laughs> job. She's just trying to live, you know? Right. Like, and, let I her mean, live. Yeah. And in a way, I mean, I think her sort of, you know, experiencing and expressing her her diagnosis in her way contributes to the the reality of the situation, which is that people have very different experiences of this diagnosis. You know, mm-hmm. they have different kinds of symptoms and different kinds of, you know, ways of interacting with the world. So I think actually I, I might even flip the writer's uh, assessment that this is not helping other autistic people, but in fact, by expressing, you know, a particular type of, you know, a particular expression of autism that is actually you know, being faithful to the the reality of the diversity of people with autism. Yeah. I think to that end, another thing that might be helpful to you, letter writer, is you say, you know, um, we went for years without diagnoses or support. And mm. implicit in that framing is that if we had gotten diagnosed sooner, we could have gotten support sooner. 
And on one level, that's true, but I worry that doesn't leave enough room for the very troubling reality, which is that, you know, for many, many, many years and for many, many, many children, a diagnosis did not mean they then got support. A diagnosis meant they then got abused, institutionalized, forced into ABA therapies, forced to, uh, you know, stop doing anything that brought them comfort, peace, or uh, like anything relaxing in panic-inducing or overwhelming moments, forced to mask. Um, and again, I know that you know this letter writer. I don't I don't mean to suggest that you have a, a, a wholly naive idea of the challenges and harms that many autistic children go through. I just really think that I, I can understand your own particular situation of not receiving a diagnosis until late in life also came with um, not getting information about yourself that could have been useful, not getting support that might have been available to you, wishing you had had it sooner. That's real, that's painful, and that's difficult, and you have every right to talk about your own experience in that way. But when you think about, you know, if if I had gotten a diagnosis sooner, depending on, you know, your location, your circumstances, your family of origin, your school district, your school district funding, um, potentially you could have gotten support sooner, potentially you could have gotten harmed in more um, institutionally supported and reified ways. So I just want to really encourage you when you start to think of it along the lines of, if only we behave in the right way and get our diagnoses in the right order, then we get the support that we need. So much as, you know, how can I get the help I need now? How can I organize with other autistic people and, you know, be in like community and solidarity with others, um, including children? What are ways that I want to actively help out the community that maybe I haven't had a chance to do in the past, but that I would like to do now, rather than just think, uh, you know, a diagnosis means support. I, I'm glad that in this case it has meant it, but it doesn't always, and it hasn't always. Um, and so I, I think this really does come down to this touches on my own anxieties about people taking my needs seriously that, you know, uh, close to last sentence. I think that's where all of this um, intensity is coming from. And that makes so much sense to me. And it also makes sense that like in a world that is pretty uh, low sometimes in supplying resources and support to autistic people and often pretty high in providing surveillance, hostility, repression, abuse, it's stigmatizing, et cetera, of autistic people. Like the fear is if my friend doesn't act in a way that is like perfectly respectable, we won't get the things that we need as a community. And so I need to manage her behavior so much as historically as a community, we don't get a lot of good stuff. And it's easier to blame the person next to me than it is to think about ways that like my family or my school system or the other caring adults in my life may have failed me because that's painful. I can't do as much about it. And not all of them are going to listen to me. But I really think in this case, the thing that you should, and I really encourage you to sit with is, I'm anxious that people won't take my needs seriously. I'm anxious that people won't believe me if I talk about my own needs. I'm anxious that people will think I am being dishonest or manipulative or trying to get away with something or pretending not to know to do things so that I can make other people do them for me. That's my fear. And that is, I think, that's it. That's where all of this is. Not your friend picking a new synonym for the word hobby. That's not your problem. This is your problem. And, you know, to that end, I don't think you have to deal with your own feelings in private. I, I want to kind of end on like, I have good news for you, letter writer. Like the answer to this is not just get over it or, you know, keep this to yourself. I, I think maybe historically that has been a 
helpful strategy because you didn't have that support, that claiming, that that group, that that community that you wanted and that you are now beginning to find your way towards. So there's that thought of if I have a problem, you know, probably I should just keep it to myself because people wouldn't understand or they wouldn't help me. Um, and and the opportunity you have now is to look for safe controlled ways to start to share fears and anxieties with others. Maybe it's not with this particular friend right now, right away. Maybe it's getting to know other autistic people, asking if they're comfortable talking about fears and anxieties, talking about it with them. Maybe it's looking for support groups. Maybe it's looking for, uh, you know, organizations or um, direct action groups that work to, you know, improve the lives and conditions of different autistic people and looking for uh, friends and colleagues and comrades there, talking about it with them. Maybe it means looking for a competent, affirming therapist um, who has, you know, some knowledge uh, of your situation. I say that with something of a chuckle in my voice because I realize that's very difficult and time-consuming and expensive in the best of circumstances and that many, many therapists have, you know, themselves perpetuated serious harm against autistic people. So I don't mean to throw that one out there. It's just like, yep, just go find one of those therapists who grow on trees <laughs> and take everybody's insurance and have a sliding scale and are great on like autism politics. And has um, an appointment in the next nine months. Right, right. So I don't mean to like laugh as if it's like a funny need, but I, I think that's where this needs to go. And then you can maybe share some of this with your friend, but only if you feel that you can do so without either directly or indirectly accusing her of lying. And if you think you wouldn't be able to do that, err on the side of talking about it with somebody else. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is, I think, a, a useful moment to move into discussing your work because one of the first thoughts that I had when I you know, saw your title was this question of when you are conducting research along these lines, how do you separate out unconscious from conscious bias? Because I was really struck by there were ways in this particular letter that the letter writer did sometimes seem aware of certain biases mm -hmm. and then other moments where some of that awareness seemed to slip away. And so I was curious, is it a question of like avowed bias is conscious bias? Like do, how do you account for like conscious but withheld biases? Is that something that you think about often or is there just like a specific across the board definition? I think about this a lot. This was like a, a very central question for me when I was looking into this book because, um, you know, the, the kind of the gist of the book is, uh, well, the, the question that I was really trying to answer is like, what are what are some real approaches that change people's behavior, uh, whether it's interacting with one another, interacting with groups? What are approaches that change cultures and organizations to behave in more fair and just and life-affirming ways? And mm -hmm. I, was looking, I was looking at unconscious or un unintentional bias as opposed to the kind of more overt, conscious, kind of egregious kinds of prejudice that um, mm -hmm. you know, we associate with hate speech and things like that. And the, the challenge is that I think these are often 
thought of in kind of a binary fashion, like a a particular act of discrimination is either conscious and intentional or unconscious and completely spontaneous, you know, and and part of the, you know, the the unconscious or the subconscious. And I I think the reality of the situation, now that I've spent a lot of time deep in the cognitive research, the you know, the neuroscience and the cognitive psychology of it, is that um it's not quite so clear cut. I mean, mm-hmm. the idea of unconscious bias is that we absorb information and knowledge and stereotypes and associations from our culture. And those live in our memory. Um, and they attach to the categories of people that are salient in our culture. Mm-hmm. And then when we encounter a person who meets those, who fits those categories, those kind of stored associations begin to influence the way that we interact, the way that we evaluate the person, the way we feel about the person. And that happens so spontaneously that it, it it's not, it's, it's something that we're not always aware of. So the uh, kind of the classically, the idea of unconscious bias is that we have beliefs and values that we consciously hold and that we that are are avowed and professed values. You know, maybe I believe all people should be treated with dignity and respect and I believe that all people are fundamentally equal. But that while we might have those values that we consciously believe, we are susceptible to acting in ways that conflict with those values because of the stereotypes and associations that we've stored um, as a, you know, as a byproduct Mm -hmm. of living in a culture. So that's kind of the idea of unconscious bias. We have conscious beliefs, and then we have these kind of pesky stereotypes and associations that are kind of lingering in our heads that can come out and affect the way that we interact with people. But I think another way of, of thinking about it, one that I've actually come to think, one that I've come to kind of hold as 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 more um, plausible is that that maybe the beliefs and the associations aren't that separate. You know, maybe there are some beliefs that we just haven't examined fully, and there are some. You know, there's some uh, researchers who believe that like when people express a spontaneous sort of act of bias, you know, when people um, behave in a discriminatory way in a way that seems to conflict with their values, what's actually happening is they are expressing their beliefs. They are expressing mm-hmm. their values, but perhaps they haven't examined them or perhaps they, have, they haven't really, they don't have an opportunity to question them in that moment. Um, so there's kind of this, there, there's a bit of a disagreement in, in the research about whether, whether unconscious bias is really something that's sort of separate from our beliefs or whether it's perhaps a reflection of our beliefs. Yeah, I would imagine that there would be so many uh, kind of interesting opportunities to try to gauge whether or not unconscious in various settings meant the same thing as unavowed or unaware mm-hmm. um, or uh, silent or secretive. Um, and I'm so curious, too, if if there's a sense of like my my first sort of gut reaction would be that bringing someone into awareness of a previously unconscious bias would my 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 first thought would be like that would probably make it worse like increased awareness they would lean into it they would get defensive um they would uh find a reason to uh, uh take it further um but i would also imagine that there might be people who would think bringing someone into awareness of an unconscious bias is how you end it or how you fix it is there a split along those lines do people think about it in those terms have you noticed in your own research you know, when we first bring someone into awareness of an unconscious bias, it goes off the charts or it it 
falls lower. Where's that? Uh, I don't have an end to this sentence, so just <laughs> pretend that I ended it well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's there's there's it's a it's a complicated um, it's a complicated question. I mean, it really depends on a couple of things. It depends on whether a person is internally motivated to mm. overcome prejudice. If they have like a strong internal motivation. Um, and also a, a set of beliefs that are anti-prejudice beliefs, and they have developed enough kind of emotional, um, you know, enough emotional skills that they can sit with the discomfort of seeing something unpleasant about the self, then that can be really productive. And in fact, there there is research that shows that there's a particular kind of training that has been shown to change people's behavior. And part of it involves increasing awareness, like increasing awareness of one's own ability to be susceptible to expressing bias. Um, but I think you bring up a good point. I mean, there certainly are people who get very defensive and very upset and kind of disengage entirely from even wanting to talk about it when their attention is brought to the fact that they they might be a, you know harming someone in an unintentional way. Gosh, that's um, that's really really fascinating. Uh, can you tell us just a little bit more about maybe some of the particular focus in your book? Because I imagine you couldn't write about all biases in all time in all situations. Whether there was like a particular avenue of research that you found especially invigorating or exciting or or interesting or like a, a really crucial uh, area that needs more study or more interventions. Oh my gosh! I mean. Generally, yes, more study is needed in like all areas. <laughs> My particular focus was really on approaches that change people's behavior because I'd been writing about the problem for for many years and I was getting kind of tired of just writing about the problem. I wanted to look at how we go forward, what actually creates the world that we all want or what that, you know, that we all deserve to live in. Mm -hmm. And so, so my angle was really looking at approaches that have some good data behind them that show mm -hmm. that they result in people behaving differently or thinking differently or acting differently um, or organizations functioning differently. And I mean, the good news is like, I found a lot of approaches that do have, you know, that show some results that, that show that people act differently there's so many examples. I mean, one one of the examples I talk about in the book is the idea of um, contact theory, which is a hypothesis that this psychologist Gordon Alport um, came up with in the 50s. Although actually, as an aside, um, and uh, I think this is an important aside, uh, Gordon Alport, white guy, 50s, came up with this idea mm -hmm. of contact theory, which I'll talk about in a second. But I found in my own reading that the idea of contact theory had been um, put into practice decades earlier by an African-American woman named Juliet Derricott, who uh, was never credited with hmm. doing that work. So I just want to put that out there because people talk about uh, contact theory as being very um, synonymous with Gordon Alport, but there are some unacknowledged hmm. hidden figures in the psychology history as well. So uh, the idea of contact theory is that if you bring people together across social differences at equal status and they have a shared goal and they work collaboratively on a shared goal and it's all within kind of the um, under the aegis of like some kind of authority or some kind of institution that like approves of it. So they're not kind of going against an authority and doing this. 
that that action can result in greater understanding and decreased prejudice between those two groups over the long term. And so this was like a hypothesis that that has been around for many decades. But recently, there have been some really interesting experiments that have shown that this, it actually does work. So um, there was a, a really interesting field experiment um, in India with cricket players, where there were cricket players of different castes um, that were all in a cricket league together. And some some of the teams had men of different castes on the same team. And some of the teams were homogenous. So men only of one caste were on a team together. Um, and they played like hundreds of games. And what the research showed was that at the end of this tournament, men who had just spent the previous weeks and many, many games playing with men of different castes on the same team um, toward, you know, working on a shared goal, that they later had more friends of, of different castes. They were more likely to nominate someone from a different caste for a prize. They were more likely to want to spend time with men of different castes. Um, and that was generally the opposite case with, with men who had only been um, with men of their own caste on the team. I'm so, you know, eager to to read this book and to um, think about it, especially in the context of of the work that I do here on the show. But did you find that you spend more time with the unconscious part or with the bias part? By which I suppose I mean, how much time do you spend talking to psychoanalysts about this? <laughs> you know, psychoanalysts did not play a huge role in my um in my research. I mostly, you know, I talked to hundreds of researchers, mostly, neuroscientists and psychologists and, you know, mm-hmm. cognitive scientists and economists and historians and people um, like that. So, uh, you know, they their kind of definition of unconscious might be different than a psychoanalyst's mm-hmm. um, definition of unconscious. But I, yeah, I tended I tended to look at the kind of discrimination that is expressed by people who hold egalitarian values. So when people behave in a way that's different from how they would like to behave. That's what I was looking at. And that is the the problem that I was really trying to solve with this book. I think that describes a lot of us, you know, I think many of us who who really want to treat people well and want to interact in trusting and reality-based ways still can inadvertently express the biases of our culture. And so that's what I was really mm-hmm. looking at trying to move forward on. That makes sense for so many different reasons, not least of which is it's a lot easier to to study something that you can at least um, affirmatively describe or define as opposed to, you know, like I'm thinking of like Frome's contention of just like, how are we going to study the unconscious? It's that of which we are not aware. It's that of which we are unconscious. Right. Uh, so it, it does make sense. Although now I do sort of wish that someone would write a book about things that they can't research because they recede away from conscious examination. <laughs> um, which, Simply might be impossible, but I, I will um, leave that to you. you to write that book. <laughs> Darn it! I thought you were going to say that you would work on that next. Fine, uh, I will. I'll think about it, or rather, I will think around it. Jessica, thank you so much for joining us today uh, and for giving such lovely, thoughtful advice. I, I'm so looking forward to uh, getting a chance to check out the book, and I hope that many others do too. I know that the paperback of your book will be coming out a little bit later this year. Can you tell our listeners where they might be able to find it? Absolutely. Um, the book is available anywhere that you buy books. I strongly encourage anyone to support independent bookstores, so whatever local bookstore you like to get books at, 
Um, it's available, of course, on all the online retailers as well. And yeah, I look forward to hearing what people think if they have a chance to check it out. Especially if you are a psychoanalyst, uh, then at least I want to hear from you. Jessica, thank you again. <laughs> have a fabulous rest of your day and I'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on Big Mood, Little Mood with me, Danny Lavery. Our producer is Phil Circus, who also composed our theme music. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash mood to sign up to subscribe or hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you're using right now. Thanks. Also, if you can, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We'd love to know what you think. If you want more Big Mood, Little Mood, you should join Slate Plus, Slate's membership program. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice and conversations with the guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $1 for your first month. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form, or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. The other thing that kind of occurs to me um, along the lines of just sort of figuring out if there's a way to create a a comfortable container for this encounter is um, if there's too much vulnerability involved in actually like talking about it I'm with the parents. I wonder if dinner is kind of an intense way to meet people because you're Mm. there's nothing else to do. Mm -hmm. You know, you're just like it's head on, you know, sort of face to face staring at each other. I don't know. Maybe would it be more comfortable to like go for a walk with them for I don't know a half an hour or do an activity together yeah. um, that's like a little bit less just face to face. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working. The HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.